with us. Let's pray, and we'll start. God, we, I, can't, I can't pray for other people. I want to become the person you made me to be. And I want um, arrogance removed from my life. And I want, uh, I don't want to hide my faults. I don't want to live in them and dwell in them either, but I just, I am broken. And I need you. And I need your leadership. And I know there's a lot of us saying me, me too. So this morning as we enter into your, to your word together, um, we need you to speak. We pray that your spirit would flow through and, and go to places in our hearts and our lives that, um, that really no message, no speech could ever get to, but you can get to. And then God, give us courage because um, it's scary to be touched in those places in some ways. So we need courage from you. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so we are in a series called Faith Checkup. You know that by now. And from the beginning, I've said this is not a safe series because checkups are not safe. They're always uncomfortable when you go see a doctor or any kind of kind of checkup. The heart of the series, the underlying foundation of it is the, is the idea that we can intentionally influence who we become in the future, five years or one year, 20 years, that we as human beings have something that I don't think any other species has, the ability to go, I want to be something I'm not yet. I want to learn to have certain qualities I don't have yet. And we can make choices looking at the future in mind and actually embrace it with God's help, of course. You know, we're not doing, we can't do it without God. But God has given us, he says, come with me, and, but we've got to choose to come with him and, and be a part of it. We said throughout the series, we're going to go to some places where it's going to be very tempting to elbow someone else. So we have one rule, which is this is a self-exam. This is not a husband exam. This is not a husband exam. Where's Lori? There she is. This is not a husband exam. This is not a, a, a wife exam. This is not a child exam. This is not your brother-in-law. This is, this is nothing. Someone said to me today, is it okay just to go, are you paying attention? Is it okay? No, it's not okay to do that even, right? If they fall asleep, that's okay. But why is that so important? It's because you can't make someone else change you 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 can you can mention it you can bring it up but they have to embrace it in their hearts you can't make new year's resolutions for someone else they have to make their own or else it's outside in and that's not how this works this is inside out stuff so this is god hopefully prompting us the holy spirit to take some steps in our life so that's why we're saying hey self-exam self-exam and everybody will be happier when you get home throughout the series james is our guide not just the book but actually the person of james because the book will, you can read the book and think you're hearing one thing, but when you know who James is, and we're going to put some flesh on James today a little bit more, when you know who James is, it starts to take a different flavor to it, and I think it's a better, richer experience. So we'll hit that today. So just the surface part, remind you, is James is actually a brother of Jesus, right? Not, not So he's half-brother, right? Because Mary had Jesus, and then I think, very likely, James was the firstborn after Jesus, right? To Mary and Joseph. And so he's a half-brother. He had no faith, which if you have a brother, you totally get it, right? My, my brother a couple years ago came and said to me, he goes, hey, I've had this theological insight. Well, what is it, Steve? Right? And Steve would love for me to share this with you, by the way. Um, and seriously, because sometimes I share stuff, he's probably not so happy, but I'll share. He likes this. He said, the theological insight is this. I am not God. <laughs> and I, and I, I looked at him and I said, you should have come to me a long time ago. I could have helped you with that. I grew up knowing you weren't God, even when you thought you were God. But, and he started to, to work on that theology as a starting point because when you realize you're not God and you're looking for God, you've got to look somewhere else. 
right? So it's, it's kind of a big deal, but we won't. He thinks he's going to write a book. I hope he does. Um, it'll be longer than the title. <laughs> so, so Jesus our guide. He's a brother Jesus. He had no faith. He didn't believe his brother was God until after the resurrection. Then he changed his mind. Then he became the leader of the Jerusalem church, right? So he's become the major player in the early church. So today's message is called Drawing Close, and you'll get why that is. It's, it's part of chapter 4. But let me take you back to the whole physical exam thing. When I was younger, years ago, and you go to a doctor, it was a different experience than it is today. You'd go into the waiting room, you'd wait for your name to be called. A lady, usually, almost all nurses, right? White white outfit, maybe they even had the white, this when I was a kid, they had the white little things in their, in their hair and they'd come out and they would read your name, Doug Mathers, and I'd get up and, and I would walk over and they, she would lead me to this room, right, and she'd click the clickers on top of the door and you'd go in and you'd wait for the doctor and it was always a guy at that time. I'm, I'm glad for the world has changed a lot, but you'd go in, the doctor would come in and he would check your reflexes, check your blood pressure, listen to your heart, thump your back, other stuff that they did and ask questions and then you'd be done with your exam. Today, when I go into a doctor's office, I don't know, male, female, somebody is going to come say, Doug Mathers. I'll get up. They go, oh, no, no, don't get up. Here, fill this out. Right? If you don't go right to the room, you've got to fill out paperwork. And the paperwork, some of it is about my physical health and how I'm sleeping and things I'm doing you know, at a physical level. But some of it isn't. Some of it is downright nosy. <laughs> How's your marriage? How's your relationship with your kids? Have you lost your job recently? Do you have a new job? How's your, what, how much are you drinking and smoking and all that kind of stuff, right? All of that comes up. And here's what, what's happening is they don't want to just know about my blood pressure, my reflexes, my physical stuff. They want to get in my head. And they want to find out how much stress and different things I'm experiencing going on. And the question is, why? Why are they digging deeper like that? Because it's none of their stinking business, right, at one level. I just want you to check the tires, see if the air pressure is Okay. <laughs> And here's, here's why. It's because it used to be that the physical and the emotional and the relational were seen as two different worlds. And the doctor was your auto mechanic, right? You fix the car. That's all we wanted. Today, we have a more holistic view where we go, no, 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 the emotional and the relational and the physical overlap incredibly. Very few things are just physical. In fact, your physical things are going to make you feel certain things emotionally and affect your relationships. And your relational things are going to make things come out in the physical world. And we're much more holistic. And by the way, it's an, it's an upgrade. Even though they're nosy, it's an upgrade in how we, how we do medicine. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because I think at the heart of, of James, James is going, yeah, 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 that's it. Only it's about our faith. It's about our faith. Our faith is not just the things we believe. We can write that down on paper. We have written it down on paper. We have a statement of faith. Things we believe about God. And James goes, yeah, even Satan believed those things. Right? And yet we don't have a relationship with it. So he goes, hey, that's, that's faith. But when you have faith, it should affect your relationships. These things are overlapped in great ways. In fact, a better picture, if I can be so bold, is to say, let's put God into the picture, right? So, so faith up here, this, there it is. This blue without any, just pure faith without the relationships, that's just data. What you believe, what you know, what, maybe it's religion, what you do, right? Okay, that's, that's faith. But, but where faith gets lived out is in this area with God, your relationship with God. What did Jesus say to do? What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. With Take your faith. Don't just believe the right things. Love God. Love him deeply. And then he also said, but the second one is to love people. 
right? So you take your faith, and your faith should influence how you love people, how you love God. And the sweet spot is when you are living in your faith, loving God with all your heart and loving people like God loves them, right? He goes, so this faith is not a dead thing. It's not just a set of beliefs. It's an active living thing that changes our lives when we're living it from the right place. Now, why is that such a big deal? It's because James is going to become invasive in the first 10 verses of James chapter 4. He's going to go to places where it's going to be uncomfortable for us. So we're just going to dig in. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says this, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Right. By the way, he's writing to all kinds of, of churches scattered. He's not thinking of one church that has all these problems. All these churches are dysfunctional. And by the way, every church you go to is, a dysfunction, is dysfunctional too, including cross ones. I know some of you are here for the first time. Just so you know, we're a mess. <laughs> right? We're broken, humble people. We, we, we rub against each other. We have to forgive each other. We have to learn to live this out, this whole faith thing. And he goes, what's causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? Right? So what's he saying? He's saying, hey, guys, you're living, with, you're, you're living here, and you're not letting your faith affect how you treat people. And so you're having quarrels and fights and you're not forgiving and you're not finding the depth of relationship that God dreams of for his, his family, his people, to have together. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. By the way, do I think they were actually killing each other? I doubt it. I, I think it's more like, you know what, you're killing me, right? It's, it's, it's exaggeration or it's kind of a statement, but his point is well taken that you are breaking and destroying relationships. You're killing each other. You're killing each other. Because you're jealous of each other, and of course this enters the world of stuff, right? Oh, you make more money. You got a nicer car than me. You got a better job than me. Oh, your spouse is handsomer, prettier than mine is. Oh, you could have children and I couldn't, and I'm barren, and now I'm bitter against any women who have children, or I'm divorced and you're still married, so I don't like you anymore. I mean, all of that stuff. By the way, somewhere in there, I'll bet you go, I know somebody, or I, you know, keep the elbows to yourself. But you experience those things. You want something you don't have, and you're jealous. By the way, one of the Ten Commandments, right? You're coveting something that someone else has. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war. Do they really wage war? No. But do they really fight? Yeah, they undermine each other. And they're probably pretty subtle about it. Because we church people, we're pretty sophisticated about this. We have ways of undermining each other and hating each other without ever telling someone else those things. You are all such blessings to me, right? We have ways of saying, saying what, uh, that probably more resonates in the South. Um, so you are jealous of what others have, but you, don't, you can't have it, so you fight and wage war and take it. You're at discord, right? You, yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. When I first read that verse, I thought, Really? It's that simple? It changed my prayer life. It turned God into Santa Claus because it says, I don't have it because I don't ask. I'm not going to make that mistake again. I'm going to ask for what I want, and yet I still wasn't getting it. That's because I didn't read the rest of the verses. It says, and even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. Shoot, you got to have the right motives, right? Your motives are wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure which makes no sense to me because, of course, I want what will give me pleasure. I don't want anything that's not going to give me pleasure. I don't want anything that's going to wound me and hurt me. 
and be unpleasant for me. So my prayers are only for what gives me pleasure. Now, how am I going to escape that? And the answer to that is I have to start praying out of someone else's wish list. Instead of the things I want that will give me pleasure, I have to surrender those things. And this is a mature prayer life, a really mature prayer life. I'm not there yet, mature prayer life. I'm rarely there. I have to start to say, God, what's your desire? Mine don't really matter right now. What, what do you want me to pray? Right? And then God's no longer Santa Claus, there to buy me my toys and my gifts and everything I want. Now God is God again. And, and God goes, okay, now pray for this. Pray for These are the things I dream of, Doug. We could do this together if you'll let me. And I want you to learn to pray these things, and I'll, and I'll respond. And then that changes everything. Then God answers those kinds of prayers because they're not coming out of some I need, I want, I'm just about myself. No, God, I'm surrendering that stuff. So here's what, what James is saying. Your love of money, those churches, not us, those churches, right? Your love of money and things is destructive, right? You are living outside of what true faith looks like. And so when you, if you're living here without, without faith, without grace, you're never going to measure up to, to God's desires, to God's wants for you. Right? And if you're living over here, you're going to treat God. By the way, over here, you should be afraid of God. Right? Because that's not a Jesus place to live. Over here, you're living outside of faith. You are going to be at discord. You're going to ruin relationships. And then he gets real strong about this very strong language about our relationship with God. He says, you adulterers. Right? Wow. You know what an adulterer is, right? I mean, that's somebody who's in a sacred relationship of marriage and they're going outside of the marriage. You adulterers, and he's talking about our relationship with God, our marriage to God. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God, right? Well, why is that? And he goes, you adulterer, this is why it is. God loves you so much. He's brought you out of those things, and you keep going back to your old lover. You keep chasing things and trying to fill up on the wrong things. And that's, that's me. I, I, I get it. Right? And what, you want candidness? Okay, God, I love you. I love you. But can I love these things just a little bit? You know, so I tried that with Lori. I said, hey, Lori, I love you. I love you. But can I just have a, like, one girlfriend once a month kind of thing? And she's, she's like, well, you can. It just depends where you want to live. <laughs> and how much of your income you want to keep. And... <laughs> Because this is going to be crash and burn for the marriage. Like, no, not even a little bit. She, she, has, she has zero tolerance for that. I've never tested it, but she has zero tolerance for that. None whatsoever. And I don't have any for her either. It's a zero tolerance marriage for that kind of stuff, right? God goes, yeah, that's like me. If you want to be friend of the world, if you want to cheat on me, you make yourself an enemy of God. And James is trying to scare us a little bit because he goes, this love for God, your relationship with God is so sacred, so important, don't do anything to risk it. Don't do anything to risk it. And loving stuff ruins relationships. It ruins your relationship with God. The love of stuff, not having stuff. Having stuff is fine. You know, that's next week's message, but we'll go there. Loving stuff is the problem because then people and God get lost in it. So let's go on with the passage because we've got a lot to do here. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? 
Right. They say God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. He's still talking about this adultery business. He's, God is passionate means when you cheat, he's more upset than my wife would be. He's more upset than your husband would be because you're cheating. I'm cheating on him. So he's placed that spirit with us that should know better and be loyal. And James is going, come on, come on, come on, come on. Don't love stuff. Come back to God. What's causing all this division among you, all these quarrels? Isn't it come from those evil places? So then he says, and, and he, God, gives grace generously. The scripture said, God opposes the, opposes the proud because nobody's attracted to pride and arrogance, but gives grace to the humble. Those people who will own who they are, what they've done, what they're experiencing, broken, humble people. God opposes the proud because the proud always say, God, I, I am, and I don't need you. But the humble say, I am, and I need you. And that's the difference. So all of that to get to what I think is the most important part. In fact, the next few verses I think rank among the top 10 passages in Scripture. And you've probably never viewed them that way, and I'm not sure I've ever viewed them that way before this, before this week before wrestling with them. Here's what James says. He says, so humble yourself. Not humiliate yourself. Humble yourself before God. Be honest before God. Who you are, your brokenness, your humility. Come on, embrace all that. Resist the devil or resist evil and he and it will flee from you. Right? So humble yourselves. Come on, humble yourselves. Don't keep God at a distance. You know what it takes. Just own it. Right? And then here comes maybe my favorite verse in this passage. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Doesn't that sound like a promise? It is to me. He's saying to everybody he writes to, if you come close to God, God will come close to you. And, and, and when I hear that, I think, James, that is so bold. I'm afraid to say stuff like that out loud sometimes. I'm afraid, hey, come to God, and then God still stays far away from you, and you come back to me and go, hey, I came close to God. God never came. But James doesn't have any problems. Going, you come close to God. God will come close to you. He always comes through. He always comes through. And my question is, how does James know that? How can he say that so if to everybody, you come close to God. God will come close to you. I promise you that's the way it is. And he's promising this from the heart. I know that we've all been attracted to the wrong things and do the wrong things and love the wrong things and treat people in poor ways. But come on, if we humble ourselves and we come close to God, it'll change everything. God will come close to us. And the reason James can say that is because he's been there and he's done that. He's not standing on a podium shaking his finger at everybody. I mean, it reads that way if you read it with that tone of voice. This comes from somewhere deep in James, and this is where we have to put a little more flesh on James himself, because if you don't know James and his history, you won't, you won't be able to put it together. So I'm going to take some major puzzle pieces here. I'm going to rewind the clock from when James wrote this, and we're going to go back about, about 25 years, plus or minus. And we're going to land in John chapter 6. Jesus has not died yet. Jesus in the midst of ministry. He's ministering around Nazareth and, and Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. So when you hear Nazareth and Sea of Galilee, I want you to think of the north half of our state. In other words, the beautiful part of Minnesota. And um, that's where I was raised, right? And, and Mille Lacs or something. 
right? So it's, it's away from the crowds and the people in the city. That's where Jesus is. He's preaching around a lake and he's in the, in, in the wilderness kind of area. And on, in John chapter 6, this is what John records happens in a, in a day or actually a couple days. First of all, he records a miracle that I'm not going to read the passage, but it's going to ring a bell, I hope for you, where he fed 5,000 men and their wives who were out there and their children with just five loaves of bread and a couple of fish, right? Now, if that doesn't ring a bell for you, you need to open your Bibles and go read the whole Gospel of John. Just go read the whole thing one sitting. You can get through it. You probably have heard that story before. That's that day, and John records it. So that's a big miracle. Now, let me promise you something. James wasn't there. I don't think he was there. But James heard about that. James and Jesus' brothers heard about what took... That's a big deal. If I went to a stadium and fed a stadium of people with just a couple of loaves of bread and some fish, you know, and everybody ate full and we collect baskets of extra leftovers afterwards, I promise you that word would spread. My family would hear about it. My brothers would hear about it, right? So feeding 5,000, that happened that day. That same day, that evening... The disciples go out in a boat and Jesus walks out to them on top of the water and they weren't in Minnesota. It was not frozen. It was a a miracle deal. You know, Peter goes over and says, I'm going to walk out to you. He sinks. Jesus shaking his head at his face, kind of a moment. Come on, I'm right here. Believe, right? That's a miracle. By the way, I think the brothers heard about that. How could you? That word had to spread. The disciples came to shore. Jesus walked out to us. He wasn't with us when we started. And now he walked on the water. And that word must have spread because that's, that's spectacular So that for that to happen. And then the next day, John ends chapter 6 talking about the content of Jesus' teaching and it takes a dark shift. Right? What Jesus was teaching about takes a different shift. And here's what he taught that next day. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you have to eat my flesh. And you have to drink my blood. And I I take a step back on that. He goes, because I'm the bread of life. And and, and as soon as I hear bread of life, I think, oh, thank God, it's a metaphor. Right? He's not saying I have to actually drink his blood and eat his flesh. He's speaking metaphor about things that are deeper and richer. But I've got to be all in with Jesus. This is where communion comes from, right? We're going to drink his blood. We don't actually drink his blood or eat his actual flesh. We don't do cannibalism stuff, but he's the bread of life. We're all in with him. And this message was not well received. Here's how John chapter 6 ends. Verse 66, at this point, many of his disciples, not his 12, this isn't his 12, this is many of the people who were following Jesus, turned away and deserted him. There was a mass ex. Think about that. The day before, he feeds 5,000. The day before, he walks on water. The next day, he teaches something they don't like the sound of, and they we're gone, we're out of here, right? We're we're not in anymore, we're we're deserting. It was so disheartening to Jesus that Jesus turns to the other, the 12 and asked, are you going to leave as well? Are you out of here too, right? And, And Simon Peter, who always speaks up first, Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? Yeah, there's other rabbis out there, but you're Jesus. You... You have the words that give eternal life. And we believe and we know, we know that you are the Holy One of God. Right? 
The brothers weren't at that meeting. The brothers were somewhere else. But they heard about all these people not following Jesus anymore. They heard about that. And they thought, good, maybe this is the end of it. Now, we're going to go to John 7, and we're going to find the brothers. Okay, so John 7, we're going to see James' response to all of this. Remember, James is just one of the brothers, probably the oldest brother. So you won't see his name, but you'll see the word, you know, brothers. Right? So John 7, 1 through 5 says this. After this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. Where's that? Northern Minnesota. Right? He wanted to stay out of Judea. What's that? That's the Twin Cities. Right? The capital's there. Jerusalem's there. Much more populated kind of environment. And by the way, the distance is even off. It's about right. Right? where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death, right? So Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay away from the Twin Cities where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. Right? So, so that's what was he doing. He was avoiding dying too soon. Eventually that's going to happen, but not yet. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters. So we don't need to know about that other than it's a big Jewish holiday. A lot of people would travel to the cities for that one, right? And his brothers said to him, and I'm going to show you what they said, but I have to give you a little warning first. It's, they're going to be sarcastic, right? Why are they sarcastic? Well, first of all, they're brothers. So that goes with the territory. But, but secondly, if I don't give you this warning and you read it, it sounds sweet, but you have to understand they're being sarcastic and it'll become very clear. So here's what his brothers say to him. You should leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. Right? You can't become famous if you hide like this. Right? You can't, nobody from northern Minnesota ever accomplishes anything. You got to go to the cities. That's where the action is, what, what they're saying. If you can do such wonderful things, and I think they dragged out the word wonderful, show yourself to the world. Right? Here's John's final statement. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. That's James. They didn't believe in him straight up. One time they tried to have him put into an insane asylum. He's nuts. This time they're trying to get him to go to the cities early and get killed. That's, that's not exactly a loving brother moment, right? They think he's deranged. They don't know what it is, but they were glad, good, this thing's going to fall apart. People are deserting him, all right? So now we're going to go fast forward again. Sorry, back to, to time. Only we're going to go to after the resurrection, and James is a believer, but Paul is now, or Saul is now Paul, and he's writing a letter to the church in Corinth, and he's talking about what happened after the resurrection and how people met Jesus, right? Because remember, James was a brother who didn't believe until after the resurrection. He saw Jesus and everything changed. And we get a little glimpse of this in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 9. Here's what Paul writes. He says, I passed on to you what was most important and had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as Scripture said. By the way, that's just faith, right? That's the data. Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, you believe that. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day. Again, more data. He was buried. He died. doesn't mean you embrace it. Even the demons believe this. But he buried and he rose on the third day, just as the scripture said. And then, listen to this. He goes, he was seen. Now, he should have said he was seen by the women. He skips the women. Go read Matthew. You'll, you'll see the women. They were the first ones to see Jesus. But he was seen by Peter and the 12. So he's giving this in order. He was seen by Peter and the 12, the 12 disciples. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive. In other words, go see him. Go talk to him. You don't believe me. Interview them. 
They saw Jesus, though some of them have died, right? And the disciples, you can go talk to them. Most of them are still alive, right? And then he was seen by James, right? Now, oh, wait, 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 James. Which James? Because two of the disciples were, yeah, but we've already covered those guys. The 12, they were in the 12. This is, this is James. This is the brother of Jesus. He was seen by James and later by all the apostles, and, and I'm not sure how you define who the apostles were versus disciples and all, how that works. I think it's someone who saw Jesus alive before and then afterwards. And last, of all, and last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. I, Paul, also saw him, for I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted the church. Okay? If that makes sense to you, you got it. If it doesn't, you need to read more of your Bible so you learn who Paul was and his, his journey. But he's writing this, and, and to talk about himself a little bit, but we are interested in what he just kind of casually slipped in there. Then he was seen by James. He was seen by James. He was seen by James. And by the way, doesn't it sound like he was seen by James one-on-one? It doesn't say he was seen by the brothers. It doesn't say that. It says he was seen by the 12 disciples. So that one meeting, seen by 500, more than 500, that's another meeting. Then he was seen by James and later all the apostles. But James, it sounds like he got his own private meeting with the resurrected Jesus, his brother. So here's the question. How do you think that meeting went? You're the brother. You're James. And you have this meeting with the one you didn't believe in, the one you saw die, the one you wanted to get into an insane asylum, the one that you said, hey, go to the city and show off your miracles with sarcastic, mocking voice. And here he is, the resurrected Jesus, right in front of you. How does that meeting go? What was that like? And I think I know the answer. And I think James gives us the answer, but it's hard to find unless you're, unless you kind of connect some puzzle pieces. So let me take you to another place in Scripture, because the answer I think that this meeting with Jesus. And by the way, I would love. I, w- I wish James would have wrote it all down. Right? How that meeting took place. We don't have a copy of that. I think that meeting was like the reunion of Joseph and his brothers. Right? Now, when I say Joseph, I'm not talking about Mary and Joseph. I'm not talking about the carpenter. I'm talking about Joseph from 2,000 years before Jesus, the Old Testament, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. You know, the, the, the patriarchs of the tribes. Right? And, and, you might remember the story, you might not. It is, you can find, go read it for yourself if you don't know it. It's a lot of reading, but it's Genesis 37 through 45. If you want to take a shortcut, go to YouTube, put in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and, and you will have an hour and a half of enjoyable presentation of what is kind of the story, more or less. It's not exactly scriptural, but it's pretty good. Right? And you get to see Donnie Osmond, who you probably haven't seen for a while. So there's, there's a bonus there, right? This story is long and complicated and full of ups and downs, and I'm going to go through it in about 40 seconds. So you need to go read it for yourself if you're not familiar with it. But here's the basic story. There's 12 sons of Jacob, but Joseph was favored by his father, which is a very cruel thing for a father to do, favor one son over all the others. He gave him the special coat. The coat became a symbol of the brother's jealousy towards him and the father's favoritism towards him. So the brothers despise him, 11 of them, 
one of one of him. So the brothers end up, they're so angry with him, they sell him into slavery. By the way, he had some dreams that make the brothers feel bad about themselves. Again, go read it for yourself. Joseph stays faithful to God through all the challenges that come, and there's lots of them. I'm skipping over a major chunk there. So again, go read it for yourself. Decades later, after Joseph has been in prison, he ends up getting promoted to sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh. He's One day he's down in a jail cell, practical purposes, dead. And a few days later, he's sitting at the right hand of the Pharaoh. Okay? The brothers think he's, they're dead and gone. The, the, they sold him into slavery. That guy's got to be dead. Nobody lives through that. Ishmaelites, eh, it's not going to happen, right? So, so he's gone. He's out of sight. He disappears for decades. And then a drought comes, a famine comes, and the brothers living in Canaan, they're going to die. And they decide they have to go to Egypt because for some reason there's this guy helping plan Egypt's resources and he's reserved food during prosperous years. And now during this famine in Egypt, they're not, star- they're not starving. They've got food. They've they're rashing it out. And so they go, our only hope is to go to Egypt and see if they have enough to share with us. The person that was doing the rationing was Joseph. That's the position he had, the power position. So they come to Egypt for food. The very brothers who sold him to slavery, and they thought for sure he's dead. They come to Egypt for food, and they have to meet with Joseph. Only Joseph isn't Joseph anymore. Joseph has an Egyptian name. And Joseph, they don't recognize him because he's gotten rid of the icky beard. Right? He's gotten rid of... I'm just looking at all the bearded people in the room. Um, he's gotten rid of the beard. He's gotten rid of the rags. He's dressed like an Egyptian. He's got his hair cut like an Egyptian. He's shaved like an Egyptian. He has an Egyptian accent by this point in time. I mean, he's, for all practical purposes, he's Egyptian. Right? So they have to meet with Joseph. They don't recognize him. And, and, it, and Joseph jerks him around. You can read about that. Joseph has a little fun. But, but wouldn't you expect Joseph just to go, um, you guys sold me into slavery. You're done. This would be justice. This would be revenge. That's not what happens. After, after playing with their brains a little bit, Joseph has them in a room together, and there's other people in the room too, and they still don't know it's Joseph, right? And Joseph's the one who can give them life or give them death, right? And here's what chapter 45 says, verses 1 through 5. Joseph could stand it no longer. What, what, he couldn't stand the, not, them not knowing, them not being connected. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, out, all of you. Now it's just him and his brothers in a room together. So they're freaking out. What is, why does he want to just be alone with us? So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Right. Guys, guys, I'm Joseph. I'm jo- you're not Joseph. I'm Joseph. I'm your brother. They're all freaking out. You know, kind of a moment. What would you be feeling at that point in time? And then, before they even respond... Joseph breaks down and weeps. And he weeps so loudly the Egyptians could hear him out, you know, through the door. And the word, it was so dramatic, the word of it got carried to the Pharaoh's palace. It's Joseph going to be okay. He's in there with those guys. And all of a sudden we just hear Joseph wailing and crying like a little schoolgirl. He's just crying in there, crying in there. Why? Because these are his brothers. And, it, and he still loves them. Why else would he weep? Why isn't he calling for the executioner? He's weeping. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive, right? He's got this special relationship with his dad. His dad's still alive. But his brothers were speechless. 
speechless. By the way, if you're the brother, how are you feeling right now? All-powerful Joseph, weeping in front of you. But he goes, my dad's still, they've got nothing to say. Their hearts are sunk. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. By the way, I think they were stunned as James would have been to see Jesus, his brother. Now listen to this. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer. Don't stand so far away. Come on, come on, come come closer. Why did he do that? So they could touch. So they could be family. So they could be close again, right? And, And their hearts are still sinking. He said to them again, I'm Joseph, your brother, who you sold into slavery. Oh, no, here we go. Right? You sold into slavery. And, and, and they're like, Joseph, we didn't mean it. We shouldn't have done it. I mean, can't you just hear them begging? They fall to their knees. Joseph, we're so sorry. We should never have done that. We were so jealous. We were insane. It was awful. We're, we were evil men back then. We've changed. Blah, 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 blah. All that kind of pouring out. And he goes, but don't be upset. Come on, come on, come on. Don't be upset. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives, to save you. Yes, you should feel bad, okay, but God used it. God used it, God knew it, and he used it. By the way, I'm, how many times have I read through Joseph, the this, this story, and I just think there's this huge hunk of scripture. It's a big story, chapters and chapters, and usually when God takes you through a narrative in the scripture of chapters and chapters, it points to Christ somehow. And I really didn't put that together. It just seemed like I got lost in the, in the little parts of Joseph's story. But this is it. God sent me here ahead of you, I'm the brother. You thought I was dead, but I'm alive. You thought I was a slave, but I'm at the right hand. He's the Christ figure. This is, this is the mirror image of what happened with Christ. And now we go back to James chapter 4, 8. By the way, just so you know, James and everybody reading the, the, the book of James, the letters came to, they were all Jewish, they would have had that story memorized word for word by the time they were eight years old. Right? That part where it says, come closer so we could be together, they would have known that moment. What an incredible moment by Joseph. In the moment he could have said, get away from me, he says, come closer. The moment those guys deserve death, he gives them life and food. Right? Every Jewish student would have known that, every child, right? So now we go back to James 4, verse 8. Come closer. Come close to God, and he will come close to you. This is called a remez. Every Jewish person would have gone straight back to come close, come closer. The same thing was happening. Come, this is what James is telling. Come close to God, and he will come close to you. Come close to God and he will touch you. Open your hearts to God and he will come in. Open your lives to him. Don't leap him at a distance. He will come closer to you if you let him. How do I know that? Because I said he was nuts. And I tried to talk him into a place to be dangerous. I rejoiced when his followers abandoned him. But I had this meeting. And he said, James, it's me, Jesus. And I fell to my knees and he lifted me up. And he said, come closer. Come close to God and he will come close to you. And of course, wash your hands, you sinners. We know that we've got wrong stuff on our hands. Purify your hearts. 
your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Your love goes both places. Let there be tears for what you've done. How can you not have tears for what, if you're one of the brothers? Let there be tears. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Both sets of brothers would have had that. Let there be sadness instead of laughter, gloom instead of joy, right? You have to come out of what you're in, and it has to come from a place of regret if it's going to change. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Tell the truth. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and here's the promise. He will touch you to lift you up. He's not going to leave you a crumpled mess. He's going to lift you up for that relationship, to fill you, to guide you. He will be your God. We will be his people. We will be his family. That's where James has been, and that's what James has done. I just thought, man, the humility of James. I know when we read it, it sounds like James is going like this to us. It's not like that. James is going, he's changed my life. He's changed everything. I used to love the stuff you're loving. This is where the quarreling comes from. This is why I hated my brother. I was jealous. But now, now I follow him. Incredible humility. If James were here today, if he was right here, I think his message for us would be three things. One, I don't care where you are, come closer. Come closer to God. Some of us in this room, I know, we've been keeping God at a distance. We're doing stuff. We're out of control. We're living lives driven by whatever physical passions we have, whatever fix we need, whatever numbness we want to numb up, whatever money we're chasing, whatever's driving our lives, it's out there. And he, I think James would say, come on, humble yourself and come closer. Come closer. Come humbly. Own it. None of that stuff is filling you up. All that stuff leaves you far away. You've been chasing the wrong things, living the wrong life. Come closer to God. Come humbly, and he will lift you up. Come close to God, and he will come close to you. And, And here's the cool thing. We can make that choice, right? Because we can intentionally influence our future. We have a decision to make what we're going to do with God. Are we going to come closer and let him come closer to us, or are we going to keep him at a distance? Are we going to embrace faith and find our sweet spot where we love God and love others, we forgive freely because we've been forgiven, we enjoy rich and deep and meaningful, we become the people we were made to be, and we're on that journey, or we're going to keep going the way we're going. And James would say, come closer, come humbly, and let him lift you up, let him lift you up. And the cool thing is, this isn't just James, this is God's word So it's really Jesus saying it to us, come closer, come humbly, and I will lift you up. Because I love you like I love my brother. I love you like Joseph loved his brothers. I will not leave you on the floor. I will pick you up. So I can't get in your heads and your hearts, and I cannot make a resolution for you. But today, if you go, I want to come closer to God, I think the path there starts with prayer. And I can't put the words in your mouth, but I will pray. If I say something that you go, that's me, you can just tell God, me too. If you have your own words, pray your own words. But I'm going to close our service with a, with a prayer for those of us who want to come closer to God. Let's pray. So God, right now, I believe you're calling some of us. Some of us who have kept you at a distance this whole service you've been calling saying come on I know what you're doing I know where you've been I know how empty you are come closer 
God, some of us are afraid because we, we don't feel good enough. We don't feel worthy. We've mocked you. Maybe with words, maybe by how we've lived. And it's hard to believe you'd still say, come closer. But we'll take James at his word and we, we, we want it. We're afraid of it, but we want it. And God, I know I need to be lifted up over and over again. This is a journey of coming closer and telling the truth about myself and allowing you to lift me up again so that I can become the person you made me to be and live the life that you have planned for me so I can know what it is to be your child, your follower, your friend. God, I don't think you want anyone to miss this. So keep calling and help us to come closer. In Christ's name, amen.